It's like a, is that like an announcement of my presence? Is that, is that so every, I mean, we joke all the time about how um, this mic is for uh, the podcast purposes because I'm so loud, um, just naturally, that I don't normally need a mic, but anyway, uh, hopefully we'll get that sound situation sorted out. Uh, can, can I just ask you guys to do something for me real quick? Will you give Kim, who just read scripture for us, a round of applause? Okay. You have no idea why I'm clapping, but she pronounced the name of the field correctly, and that's really, really rare that someone's able to do that, and so I'm really, really proud of her. So if you see her after service, just say, man, you're amazing. That's so great. Um, so anyway, good morning. Welcome to Aletheia. Uh, my name is Kevin. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, we appreciate you guys uh, being here with us this morning, braving this fake hurricane, which may or may not still come. Does anyone know? Everyone was like, are you guys going to cancel service on Sunday? I was like, the only thing they know is how slow that storm is moving, so it won't be here yet. Other than that, I mean, it, we may wake up Tuesday morning and be getting slammed. Who knows at this point, right? Because it's a hurricane, and it does whatever it wants. So that being said, we appreciate you guys being here with us this morning. So uh, last week... Uh, for those of you guys that were here, you know this already. For those of you that couldn't make it out with us last week because you were down in Orlando watching the Gators barely hold on to a win against the Hurricanes, literally one of the worst games of football I've ever watched. I'm sorry, Gator fans. It was absolutely terrible. Um, we started a new series in the book of Acts. And so um, I want to just take a second real quick. Last week, we gave out these journals uh, so if you weren't here last week and you want a journal, just raise your hand. It's a free gift to you. Uh, raise your hand. We've got some guys that will come around and hand them to you. So if you want one, just keep your hand up so that you can get one. Uh, and if you got one already and you forgot it this week and your hand is up right now, God knows that you're a liar and that you need to go home and find it. Um, but if you didn't get one last week, please just raise your hand. We want to hand these out to you. This is our gift to you guys. We want you guys to be bringing these back with you every Sunday. If you're involved in gospel community, we want you to be bringing them to gospel community. And the reason is, is we want the word of God to be in front of you. Uh, but we also want you to be able to take notes and things that the Lord may be sharing with you uh, as we study God's word together. And so just keep your hands up and we appreciate you guys doing that. And as we started that series last week, I, I want to just review kind of really quickly what we talked about a little bit last week, just, just in case you didn't get a chance to watch the podcast and see uh, what we, we saw in those first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. And so last week I said that Acts is really teaching us uh, two, two big things, um, that Acts is the narrative of uh, the early church's growth after Jesus' ascension. And so uh, what, what we said is that Acts is a continuation, and, and Luke says this very, very early on in those first couple verses, that it's a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so what we, what we try to, to really lay before you guys and help you guys understand is that the book of Acts is, is not necessarily even this big turn in human history, although it is in some ways, but in reality, the moment that Jesus shows up in the Gospel of Mark and, and walks up and opens the scroll and, say, and reads from it and then says, in, in your hearing today, right, the fulfillment of this scripture has happened and, and, and begins his public ministry, we need to understand that the book of Acts is really just a continuation of Jesus' ministry on earth without him being physically present. 
right? That the, the work of the church is not some new age or new season in the sense that it's a new uh, message or a new time period, but it's a continuation of Jesus's ministry on earth. And, and then we, we moved forward in that, and we said that Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the mission statement or the theme for the entire book of Acts, right? So let me read that verse to you. Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before he ascends into heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, right? And, and what we said is, is that um, verse really lays out for us three key things that we see Jesus kind of explaining to his disciples and apostles that the church is going to become, right? And the first one is this, right? The power source for the mission of God is the Holy Spirit. And we, we spent some time breaking down the Holy Spirit, and I don't have time for that this morning, so if you're confused about what the Holy Spirit is or who it is, you should go back and uh, listen to the sermon from last week. But we said that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and empowers us to do ministry like Jesus, and that it fuels our identity in Christ so that we can live out the mission of the church. And then we said that the mission of the church or the purpose of the church is to witness, and when we say witness, we mean witness to the resurrection and that Jesus is who he said he was, but we also witness to the glory of God. Uh, one of the things that my gospel community kind of really made clear this past week as we were talking is that in reality, God created us to witness to his glory in some way, shape, or form, that by existing, we witness to the glory of God because human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. This means every human being, no matter what race, religion, uh, gender, whatever you want to say carries inside of them inherent value because they are made in the image and likeness of God. And that because of that, we declare the glory of God simply just by existing. And so we said that, that the power for the mission is fueled by the Holy Spirit, that the purpose of the mission is to witness to the glory of God primarily in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we said that the plan, and that plan is to just go to everyone. Right? He says Jerusalem, which is the city they're in. He says Judea, which is the country they're in. He said Samaria, which is the country right next to them, of people that they don't like culturally or ethnic, uh, ethnically. Right? And then he says, junk drawer term, to the end of the earth. Right? That, the, that you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And one of the ways we kind of encouraged this last week, we said that we were titling this series, Go and Tell. And one of the things that we're doing in, uh, in conjunction with the series is something we're calling the One Campaign. Right? And what we did last week is we just said, hey, if you've got someone that God has laid on your heart that you know does not know Jesus Will you write them down on a card and lay them down at the foot of the cross? And we're going to pray over these names. And as Jesus saves these people, we're going to nail these to the cross, uh, you know, using shades of Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2 uh, in, our, in our thinking there. But we're going to ask God to do far more abundantly than what we were able to do. And you guys answered that call. There were 113 names there last week. Just go ahead and give yourselves a round of applause for that. That is awesome. Right? Uh, that, guys, just so you, like, think about this for a second. That's 113 souls, people that matter to God, people that Jesus came and died for, 
right? That God cares deeply about those names. If you didn't get a chance to do that last week, we've got some cards in the back of the, ch- of the chairs in front of you that during our response time this morning, you can write a name down and come lay that at the foot of the cross. But ultimately, what I want us to understand is in, in our need and, and understanding and desire for you, right, to understand the mission of the church and what God is doing, this means that we witness to the glory of God to everyone that God has put around us. And so we see that Jesus gives this mission to the church, to his disciples, and then he ascends into heaven, which I, we didn't get time to talk about this last week, but I always loved that scene. Jesus just, you know, casually just ascends into the heavens amongst the cloud. And his disciples, much like I would be, are standing there gawking and gazing at the heavens as he's just disappeared. I don't know if it was like a UFO taking him up. I don't know, right? But he's just levitating, Chris Angel style, up into the, into the heavens, And then as they're standing there gawking at what they've just seen because, you know, he levitated and flew into the heavens, two angels show up out of nowhere like, what are you guys doing? (laughs) Like, why are you guys hanging out here? Like, you know, he he had to go. Didn't, Didn't you just listen to him where he said he had to go? Right, he left, he's moving on, he'll be back, but it's time to get moving, right? And so now I want you just to place yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment, Here you've just followed the Son of God for the last three plus years of your life, following his teaching. You've just been through probably some of the most emotionally trying time of your life over the last 40 to 50 days as you've walked into heaven, I mean, walked into Jerusalem, right? Seen Jesus hailed as a king as he walks in, then betrayed by one of your own, I might add, then wrongly accused, tried, murdered, buried, and then raised again from the dead three days later. Then you spend 40 days with him after this amazing moment of the resurrection, walking with Jesus to see him ascend into heaven. You're probably going to be like, okay, like what? Like emotions are going to be all over the place. And then here, right before he ascends, Jesus looks at you and his last words are like, you guys got to get to work. Holy Spirit's going to come. You need to be ready you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to do it all over the earth. So you're standing there. These two angels have shown up for you, and then the angels just disappear. And then you have to now figure out what the heck do we do? Now, I don't know if anyone else is like me, but I know what I would want to do. I would immediately want to start developing strategies and say, let's go. Where are we going to go? Who's going to go here? Who's going to go here? Here we go. Here we go. We're going to name like 30 places to start sending people out. How many of you guys are like this? You're doers, like me. You, you figure out there's something that needs to be done. Because some of you guys, half you guys, the rest of you, like anyone here already studying for finals? <laughs> right? Like my mom, I'm, by the way, I'm not joking when I say this. My mom will be done with Christmas shopping in approximately 15 days. It's that, it's that way my entire life. There's just certain people where they look out, they know what needs to be done, and then they tackle it about seven to eight months before it's necessary, right, to get after it. Some of us are just doers. We like to get things done, and it, and it might look different for all of us, but that's just kind of the way we operate. And so for those of you guys that are doers in here this morning, or for those of you guys that are doer, not doers, but are just lazy and don't do anything, right, here's what I want you to see this morning. When we look at the text, I think there's something really important for us to notice here. A major movement of God is about to begin, and I want you to look and see the first thing that the disciples do after going through one of the most emotionally trying times of their life and then being given the most important mission that the world has ever seen given to mankind. Look at what they do. 
starting in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. By the way, how much would you love to be um, uh, Simon there? He's basically called like a crazy political dude. That's what a zealot is. I always loved that. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So like, it seems pretty innocuous, right? When you read that, you're like, okay, it's just some information on, on what they did next. But like, pause and think about this for a second. They've just witnessed the Son of God ascend into heaven and been given the mission of the church by Jesus and it says that they do two things, that they resolve to do two things when they head back into Jerusalem. They wait and they pray. I, I, I want to submit to you guys to just think about this for a second because in a, in a season and an age and a time where, where uh, our culture in the West challenges to be doing, 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 and then doing more, putting more on our plates, getting more done, making more money, putting more time in at work, whatever, whatever, studying harder, whatever it may be. There is this consistent pattern I see in Scripture as I study it, that major movements of God contain a lot of waiting and a lot of prayer, especially major ones. I mean, I mean think about this for a second. Noah waited for years for rain to come. Not, not like six months. No, he waited literally years for rain to come before him having built that ark turned out to be a necessity. The, the Jewish people waited hundreds of years for the promised Messiah to show up. Hundreds. I mean, you had prophets prophesying hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus that the Messiah was going to come and rescue God's people and, and turn them back to God. And hundreds of years passed, kingdoms uh, had risen to prominence and fallen in their prominence during that time. And it took all this time as God's people waited and prayed for the Messiah to show up. And now you get to this point in human history where the Messiah has shown up he has come to God's people. He has redeemed and rescued them. And they're told to go and wait a little bit longer for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Did anyone else find that just a little uncomfortable? <laughs> like, when you read this, you're like, like, when I read verse 8 of chapter 1, I am ready to get to work. I'm like, let's sit down, let's create a strategy, and then let's go plant 150 new churches along the southeast u.s like tomorrow let's do it and some of you guys are like my pastor is legitimately insane but that's the way my mind works i'm just like let's there's work to be done there's people that need to hear the gospel let's go there we're, we're wasting too much time we need to get moving but notice what they do they listen to jesus and they go back and they and they wait for the promised holy spirit but i think we can learn a lot about what they do in this season of waiting because it's not, it's not wasted time, right? He says in verses 13 and 14 that they gathered together, they prayed together, and in that gathering and in that praying, what was happening? They were unifying. 
I believe this is a pattern that we see from the early disciples, even before the power of the Holy Spirit arrives, to communicate some important things to us as the church. I mean, think, think about this for a moment. How many of you guys were here last week and wrote down somebody whose name is sitting right here at the foot of this cross right now? Just raise your hand. Okay, about half the room. The other half of you need to fill out a card today because we want to be praying for even more people, okay? So for those of you guys that wrote down a name and you have like one person in mind that you want to see come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, think about this for me for a second. If you think long and hard about what it would take to maybe see that person come, come to know Jesus, does that seem daunting to you? Like they might reject you. Like if you start sharing your faith with them, they, they might reject you. They might not want to have anything to do with you. Some of you guys may be ready to share your faith with that person, but you just don't, you're like, you're like I'm not even equipped. I have no idea what I would say. I have no clue. I have no, no clue what I would say, say to them. And so you're feeling like, I, I need to be equipped. Some of you guys are saying, I know what I need to do. I, I've read a lot of books on apologetics, or I know that I could share my testimony or talk about the gospel with somebody. But every time it happens, like an, an opportunity arises, I just lack the courage to say something. And so you just need some accountability, right, surrounding you to be praying for you and encouraging you to step out in faith. So the question comes, like, if, if every one of us in this room this morning had one person that we wanted to see come to Christ and we were going to witness to that, right, what would we need to do that? Like, how, how would we do that? I, I think what we're seeing here is that we can follow the model that the disciples lay before us here in Acts chapter 1. They don't run off and run back to their previous lives. It's to, instead, it says that they gather in the upper room, right? It's the first thing we notice is that they gathered together. Um, let, me, let me just say this, guys. We are tempted like no other time in our lives, and especially in human history, in my opinion, to neglect the gathering together as believers, like statistically, I shared this back in the spring. There's a statistic that about 45% of you guys who would call Aletheia Church your home only come three out of every eight Sundays. Like that's, that's like the real, that, those are the statistics that we're seeing in the U.S. And I, and I get it. Some of it's season of life. Some of you guys are students, and so mom and dad want you to come home and visit. You're a part of some sort of society on campus where you need to go and do things on the weekends. Sometimes you were up till 4 a.m. playing Fortnite, and you couldn't get up this morning to, to be here. You know, whatever, whatever it may be, right, that, that there are things that come and interrupt this. Right? But what we see from the pattern in Scripture is that the disciples took gathering seriously and gathering together consistently seriously. Right, if you read Hebrews chapter 10, um, if you want to turn over there with me, if you've got your Bible, if not, it'll be up on the, on the screen for you. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right, that there is a, a command that comes from Scripture that if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus in here this morning, God commands that you gather with other Christians. And, and guys, let me just say this. I've heard all the excuses as to why you don't want to gather with the saints, with your brothers and sisters in the faith. They're hypocrites, number one. It's like the number one thing I hear over and over again. Yes, Yes and amen. Guess what? So are you. 
I don't really like them. They're like they, they're we, they like weird things, and they don't have the same they don't have the same interests as me. Yes, and you don't have the same interests I have. It's okay. But God didn't design us to all be exactly the same and robotic. That's a cult, not the body of Christ. It's too it's too hard. I can't make it consistently. Things that are worth doing in life, guys, are hard. Right, that as God calls us to this, right, it, it is a command. Now, let me just say this as an aside, right? Because oftentimes I think there is a tendency for us as uh, professing followers of Jesus to look at the commands of God and see them as burdensome, but not see them as loving and for our good. Pastor Daniel shared this two weeks ago when he was preaching um, that he was a church planner out in Seattle for, for uh, about 12 years, and he dealt with a lot of families that he saw leave the church and come back. He called, he, he called it a season of life where they would throw all their energy into letting their kids try to make uh, a college sports team, and then when their kid inevitably failed because they didn't have enough skill to be um, given a scholarship, they would come back right into the church. And, and, and inevitably, every time that happened, the family had all sorts of issues going on. And the primary common denominator, he said, consistently in those families' lives was that they disconnected from the body of Christ for a season. Guys, let me just say something. A lot of you guys are young in here. If you want to ruin your life by age 40, leave the church. I've got friends that do ministry in Texas and the culture there is very, very different. Right? Almost every pastor and church planner I talk to from Texas talks about how there's this gap in the late 20s to mid 30s for most people away from the church. And most of their counseling is done for people in their early 40s and late 30s because they disconnected from the church for a season. Now guys, this isn't to say that the church rescues you or whatever else, but there is beauty in the gathering because God designed us to need community. If we want to be the church, if we want to see that one person that we laid at the foot of the cross impacted by the power of the gospel, we must prioritize gathering together. Even if it means surrendering our personal preferences, even if it means surrendering a vacation sometimes, even if it means surrendering going to Disney, even if it means you might have to miss the Gator game, even if it means you might have to surrender your fantasy football team for a season, even if it means you turn off Fortnite at 2 a.m. instead of 4 a.m., I don't know what it is. But if we want to be the church... Right. The pattern I see consistently throughout Scripture is that they gathered together consistently. We must prioritize this so that we can stir one another up to love and good works, as the author of Hebrews says. And well, let me just say this, guys. I don't think Sunday morning is enough. I, re I really don't. It's one of the reasons why we have gospel communities here at Aletheia Church. I don't believe that we have enough time in the hour and a half or however long I feel like preaching on any given Sunday morning right, to, to spend time together, to get to know one another, to know what's going on in one another's lives, to be praying for one another, to be encouraging one another, to be studying God's word together doing the, and praying for one another the way that God asks us to. And that's why we have gospel communities. If you're not plugged into a gospel community, either in a campus ministry or here at Aletheia, I highly, highly recommend you do so. I would say that it could be like the most important thing to your spiritual growth in the next six months is to get yourself plugged into community outside of church on Sunday mornings. 
Right? We've got tons of opportunities, guys. We, there, is, there is a gospel community meeting in this city that's connected with this church every day of the week except for Saturday. Every day of the week except for Saturday. You can get on our website or you can download the Church Center app. I'll share more about that later in announcements. But we need to prioritize this because it's what God's people are doing. And it's the model that's laid before us. Now, not only that, not only notice to you that they gather, but they don't get together and start talking mission strategy, where they're going to go plant churches, what they're going to do, how they're going to preach, uh, what three steps need to be in a good sermon. They're not talking about any of that stuff, according to Luke. What are they doing when they get together? They're waiting and they're praying. Guys, I know that prayer doesn't seem effective sometimes or doesn't seem like you're doing something, but trust me, if you are spending time in prayer, you are doing the most important thing you can be doing. And, and guys, hear me on this. I'm a church planner. I love strategies and mission. I'm basically the equivalent of a, C, a CEO of a startup as a church planner, right? So if you ever want to be a startup, just come talk to me. I, we did it, except we did it as a church, which was kind of foolish because we made a lot more money with a business, but you know, whatever. But as a church planner, right, I love strategy. Like, how are we going to reach people? What are we going to do? What are we going to change? How, where are we going to go send people? Who are we going to have as leaders? How are we going to train our leaders? How are we going to disciple people? How are we going to send disciples out to make more disciples? What are we going to do? Like, that's my brain all the time. I spend hours every week just reading books and blogs and different things to learn how to do that better and to lead you guys better so that we might make more disciples. But the primary strategy that the church used was prayer. If I understand the timeline correctly here before Pentecost comes and, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples here in Acts, uh, you'll see that in Acts chapter 2, they pray for about 10 full days before the Holy Spirit shows up. Could you, could you imagine that? You've been given this huge mission. You, you know like what, kind of what you're supposed to be doing, but you just have to like, just sit there and pray and wait for 10 days. Some of you guys are mad if you have to sit in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru for 10 minutes. And I know that that's God's chicken chosen just for you. Some of y'all have been cheating on Chick-fil-A with Popeyes, by the way. I just want to throw that out there. I've been on, inter- I've been on the internet. I've seen it. But could you, can, could you imagine 10 days of waiting and it says they were in the upper room. If you guys don't know anything about first century houses, imagine hot, sticky, cramped space with 140 other people. Basically Florida, anywhere in Florida. Right? In a, in a room, cramped together, praying and asking God to do the very thing that he promised and said he was going to do. And they sit in that upper room and they pray together. And guys, let me just say this. Here is why prayer is so important. Think about this big picture style, all like from the totality of scripture and what we see starting even in Genesis chapter one. We see in Genesis one, right, that God interacts with Adam and Eve after he creates them. He walks in the garden with them, that they have this direct line of communication as they walk in and experience the presence of God in Eden. And then Genesis chapter three rolls along and Adam and Eve ruin everything. And before you blame them, you would have to, so just chill out. But Adam and Eve ruin everything and sin enters the world and that before, before Eden, right, when God had created the world, right, he separated the heavens and the earth, right, and so you have the physical world and the moment, 
right? That sin enters the, the world, right? There is this separation that takes place between mankind and the holiness of God. This was shown and displayed to Israel even in the building of the tabernacle and the temple, right? If you had gone into the temple in Jerusalem during this time, you would enter this court outside called the court of the Gentiles. And so if you were like me and your family worship Bark and Thor, right, that was as far as you could go into the temple. Then you could go into the next level if you were Jewish, right? But inside that next room was another room called the Holy of Holies, and only one person could go behind that veil once a year on the Day of Atonement, and the presence of God dwelt in that place. And there would be a veil that was there, and it was signifying to them that because of sin, God is separated from us. So think about that. God, creator of the universe, who used to interact and talk and walk with Adam and Eve, there is now a veil of separation between us and God. The lines of communication have been cut off because of sin. And then Jesus invades human history. He passes through the veil. He lives his life. He dies on our behalf and in that satisfies the wrath of God on the cross and raises again in glory three days later. And guess what happens the moment that Jesus dies? The veil is torn from top to bottom. And guess what that signifies to you and to me? We can talk to God again. The lines of communication have been reopened in a way that they never were and God is welcoming you back into his presence. The God of the universe invites you into his presence. I don't know about you guys. That kind of gets me a little excited. I can go to him. This is why prayer is so important. Because let me tell you something. If you're in a class and your grade is bad and you need help, and everyone else in that class is in the exact same boat as you, failing the class and doing miserably, who are you going to go to for help? Not a rhetorical question. Who are you going to go to? The teacher. I, heard, I had like whispers. Like, I might get it wrong. It's okay. I'm not keeping score. Don't worry about it. It's not going to affect your GPA in any way whatsoever. Right? The, the professor, right? Why are you going to go to the professor? He's in charge of the class. He knows what's going on, or she knows what's going on. She understands the material. She's writing the tests. She understands what it's going to take for you to navigate through that class correctly. Guys, we're talking about the God of the universe who created human life. You think maybe he might know a thing or two about navigating human life? You think maybe the creator of the universe might know a thing about navigating through seasons of suffering, difficulty, trial, joy, happiness, raising kids, saying goodbye to loved ones. I think God might know a thing or two about that. And the beauty of what we see here is that in the midst of all this, God is welcoming us back into his presence through prayer. Prayer is the primary strategy we can use to ask God, the one who is able to actually do something, to do something. Praying and asking God to move and praying for God to move and to change us through the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that they gathered, we see that they prayed, and we see one final thing, that they unify together. He says there that they were all 
these with one accord. Anyone in here ever play team sports in high school, elementary school, youth level, whatever else? All y'all afraid to raise your hands today? Raise them proud if you played sports. There we go. Okay. All right, let me ask this question. What do you guys think is the, is the most important thing to a successful sports team, to a team being successful? Teamwork. What else? Coach. Talent. Okay. So, so yes. All right, lots of things go into making a team play well. But do you ever notice, I think college basketball is one of the best examples of this, right? You notice that all you ever see on television is the players that come in in their freshman year are going to immediately leave their first year because they're loaded with talent. How often do those teams win the, 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 the national championship? Like never. I think Duke's done it like once since this started happening in college basketball. Do you know what wins? Teams that have been together for years that are unified and working together. Teams that have been built on four, four years of working together, learning how one another play, learning how to pick and roll properly and switch off on defenses when they've been picked and to run the offense that their coaches set before them. I, I can give you an example of this. My senior year of high school, not that I would know because I was terrible, but the team around me was pretty good. And as I played on that team, like we were predicted to be state champions and we ended up getting knocked out of the first round of, of regional playoffs. It was kind of a crazy scenario, but we got knocked out. We had a ton of talent. Our quarterback was being recruited by Florida State. I mean, we just, we were so, so overwhelmingly talented as a team. And there was like 28 seniors on that team. There was just a lot of talent going around. And the team the next year, right, went all the way to the state finals. They had significantly less talent. But do you want to know why? I went back and watched them play. Do you want to know why they did so well? I have never seen a team more unified than that group of you know, 45, 50 guys than that team. Because everyone told them they were going to be terrible. Everyone told them that all of this talent had left. Everyone told them that they had just been carried by my senior class the year before. And guess what they decided? Let these people talk, we're in this together and we're going to fight for one another. And they did. And they made it further because of that unity that worked together. Now, even more so, guys, how important do you think unity is in the church? If the church is called to display the glory and witness to the glory of God and the gospel to the world around us, how important would it be for the world to say, hey, these guys are all on the same page. They love one another. They might agree on a little bit of doctrine here and there every once in a while, but these guys love one another. I mean, gosh, Jesus even said this in John chapter 13. Look at what he says in verse 35 of John chapter 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What does he say? If you have love for one another. Here's how I know the disciples loved one another. They were willing to gather daily in a small room of about 150 people and spend time praying and gathering together. Surrendering their own comfort, surrendering their own time, surrendering their own desires so that God might unify them together. But guess what? It takes an investment but it was worth it. Because what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts from here on out is these men and women changed the course of human history. If we are going to be empowered to be the church, we must observe what God asks us to do. 
gather together, pray together, and be unified together. Now, this isn't the only way the Holy Spirit empowers us, but it's one of the primary tools that God uses to make his church witness to his glory. Now, as they gather here and they're praying and they're waiting for these 10 days for the Holy Spirit to show up, look at what they do. They do one thing before the Holy Spirit shows up. Look at what they do, starting in verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was all in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit... I almost did that again. Isn't that amazing, honey? You, can't, you can take the guy out of rural Virginia, you can't take the rural Virginia out of him, huh? Some of you guys are laughing because you know why I'm laughing, because last week I said spur it. <laughs> said spirit, it wants to come out. You can't, you can't stop it. All right, sorry, excuse me. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And so as we've been seeing this morning, right, this huge mission, verse 8, right, given to the church, and they gather together and they pray together. Instead of doing and, and going on mission immediately, they wait and pray for God to move so that they can follow in his power and in his design. But they do one thing. They replaced Judas as an apostle. And let me just say this, for, for some of you guys who may not have ever been in leadership and ministry or whatever, selecting leaders can be difficult for any organization, but especially for the church. Um, so this is going to be a tough decision for the disciples to have to process through. And I want you to notice what the apostles do as they process through making this decision. Where do they go to derive the help that they're looking for? Scripture. They, they don't read the best book on management or leadership styles. They don't write their own. They don't go to Caesar. They don't go to the Sanhedrin, which are the leaders of Israel, and ask them for their thoughts. Where do they go? Peter stands up and says, look, guys, I know this is hard. One of, one of the guys who was in the throes of ministry with us betrayed Jesus, but we need someone to take his place. This is tough. How do we select somebody? Let's see what the scripture has to say about it. And he, he stands up confidently because he knows that the scriptures testify to what has just happened. Now, guys, let me, let, me, let me just say something to you for a second. This book is not just any other book that would be on your shelf. This book is, is a miracle of human history. I don't have enough time to go through and spend a half an hour talking about all the amazing things that 
that happened over the past couple hundred years that should show us that this book should not be in our hands. But it is. We have 66 books inspired by the Holy Spirit testifying God's words to us. Just so you guys know, most of ancient history we don't have much less in the depth and the breadth of information that we have coming from Scripture. That, guys, I don't know if you know this or not, the Jewish people were not a world superpower. If you weren't a world superpower, guess what happened to your culture and your historical writings? They were destroyed. And if you have this small, obscure tribe that came out of Egypt... Resting in Mesopotamia, which if you guys don't know anything, just watch the news. The Middle East is one of the most volatile places on earth and has been since the beginning of human history. We have a full history and religious writings of the people that lived there testifying to God's faithfulness to them over the course of some two to 4,000 years. Think about that for a moment. Some of the major world superpowers, Egypt, we don't have a ton of their writing. And it's only been in the last hundred years that we've even been able to, to translate what we do have. Think about the major world superpowers even in Scripture, like the Babylonians. Do you guys know how little of Babylonian history we have? It's actually insane to me. Like I had to read Babylonian and Assyrian writings in seminary like just partial stories that they had, and there would be entire sections of narratives and things going on just missing because we didn't have them anymore. Do you know that right, right now, what we've been able to find is somewhere between twenty and 30,000 copies of this book that are in 99% agreement with one another in what is written down. And by the way, guys, this, this wasn't in the days of a copier. We're talking handwritten scrolls on papyrus and reed. This, this book is a living miracle, and there are people all over the earth, followers of Jesus, that would be killed for simply having this book. And that's why it's so powerful and so important. Because the testimony that's in this book is the very words of God to us, his people. So we need to understand that when Peter stands up, he understands the power of the Old Testament as he's standing there, because guess what? The New Testament hasn't been written yet. They're living it. And he stands there, and he stands before these other men, these co-equals with him, who are supposed to help him lead this huge movement, as Jesus has just commanded them in verse 8. And he says, first thing we need to do as we wait and pray for the Holy Spirit to show up is we need to replace Judas. And here's how I know. Because Scripture tells me that it needs to happen. Right? As they gather and they pray and they unify, look at how Scripture, even in the midst of this leadership turmoil for the apostles, enlightens them, encourages them, and empowers them to live out the mission that God is calling them to do. Right? If you look at verse 18, look at what he says. Sorry. I'm trying to find my place here. Go back to verse 16. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Right, so think about this. You've just been betrayed by one of your closest friends and they killed Jesus. 
Like, would anyone be ready to start a major movement like the, the early church in the midst of all that? Like, I'm not even an emotional guy, but I can imagine being that close to Jesus and then having your closest friend betray him and have him murdered might lead to some time where you need some time to process and think through things. And just, and just so we're aware, what level of trust do you think there would have been amongst the remaining 11 guys? Probably not a ton. And yet, here's what Peter says. He's like, look, let's go to Scripture. Here's what I know. Not only do we need to unify together, we need to replace Judas because the Scriptures tell me that what came to pass during the Passion Week and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was prophesied about. Right? Enlightens them to understand that suffering was something they had to walk through as well. That Judas had to betray them, otherwise they could not be as confident in what Jesus had been saying to them. And then he says this, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Do you guys see what Peter's saying there? He's saying that everything that David wrote down in the Psalms is what? God's word. You ever have someone say to you, like, I don't think the authors of the Bible thought that they were actually writing scripture. Take them to this verse. They could be liars, but they didn't believe that they weren't writing the words of God. Right? At, at Aletheia Church, to us, we believe that the entire Bible is God's word to us for our good and his glory. If you want the nerdy seminary definition, it's a, it's a term called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal, meaning the very words in the Bible. Plenary, meaning the entire thing. Inspiration, meaning the Holy Spirit spoke it. That, that's what we believe about the Bible. Yes, I understand David was one author, and Moses was one author, and Peter was one author maybe, but it might have been Mark, but who knows, right? That Paul was an author, that Luke was an author, that Matthew was an author, that John was an author. I understand that, but what I am telling you is that we believe, and because Peter is testifying to it right here, that the Holy Spirit inspired the words of those men to be scriptures, and that's why there's things that those men wrote that aren't in the Bible, that's why John wrote other letters that didn't make it into Scripture. That's why Paul talks about other letters in his letters that aren't in our canon. Because the Holy Spirit inspired and preserved some of it for our good and God's glory. We value the Word of God at Aletheia Church. We've even said, like, if you go on our website and look at our values, the Bible is one of them listed. Because we value the word of God so highly. That's why we'll give out journals that have God's word in it. That's why we have Bibles in the back. If you don't have a Bible, please take one. We want you to have the Bible in your hands so that you can be reading it and allowing it to do what it does, which is to enlighten the way that it enlightens Peter here and explains to him, hey, here's why you just went through everything you went through. Do you know that like when my wife and I were walking through the first six months of my son Josiah's life, I came to the end of myself at one point. I was tired and broken down. Do you know what spoke to me during that time? God's word. I was able to understand that human suffering is a part of our experience because of sin. 
because of the brokenness and the cursedness of the land and the world that we live in, I was chosen by God to walk through that. And that if I was chosen by God to walk through that, God was going to lead me through it in a way that was going to both lift me up, but be for my good and his glory. And some of you guys are sitting there like, I I am not saying this so you can look at me and be like, man, Kevin suffered really well. Anyone that was around me during that season knows how terrible I was to be around. This church was like three years old at the time, and I was preaching, and that was about it. And sometimes not even preaching. And yet the scriptures enlightened my life and spoke to me to help me understand why the world is the way that it is in a way that no other book in human history possibly could. Now, not only does the scripture enlighten them, it says that it, 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 we can see that it encourages Peter, right? Not only does it tell him that Judas had to betray them, but he says two things, right? This was a promise. And we know that when God promises something, guess what? It happens. If God makes a promise in scripture, you can promise that it's gonna come to pass, it's one of the biggest things we've been teaching our kids as, as they're young. When God says something, it will happen. Sometimes dad says things and they don't happen. But when God says something, it comes to pass. Now scholars debate this, but there's somewhere between 200 and 400 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah and Jesus fulfills every one of them. Think about that. Our weathermen couldn't even tell us where this hurricane was gonna go. And yet there's multiple authors, multiple people testifying to who the Messiah was going to be and what was going to come to pass in his life. And Jesus fulfills all of them. Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit inspired it. The Holy Spirit inspired David to write down what he said. He inspired Isaiah. He inspired Ezekiel. He inspired Moses. So that when we see the life of Jesus Christ and we stand before him examining the message of the gospel and the life of Jesus Christ, we could say that, that is the Messiah. That's him. That, that is the one the Old Testament is talking about. That, that's who Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 53. That, that guy right there, Jesus, that's him. No one else can meet that, that fulfillment. It's got to be Jesus. And because they know it's a promise of God, Peter's then encouraged to trust what they need to do next, right? Because if David said, hey, Judas is going to betray him, and then also says this, let me read it to you, let another take his office, then we can trust and wait for the Holy Spirit and install new leadership while we sit here and wait. The church is being unleashed by the Holy Spirit to witness, to plant churches, to make disciples, and to tell everyone about Jesus. And guess what? That's going to fulfill scripture as well. Do you guys know that by sitting here this morning, as a, if you are a disciple and follower of Jesus, you are fulfilling scripture and what scripture says is going to come to pass. That the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And guess what? We're not sitting in downtown Jerusalem right now. Right. You are part of the unfolding and the fulfillment of Scripture coming to pass as God promised that the gospel would go forward and disciples would be made. 
And we are a continuation of that story in the book of Acts just some 2,000 years later. Scripture encourage us, encourages us to trust God's promises, but also to obey him. Because if his promises are good and we can trust his word and his promises, we can also trust his commands and live them out that they are for our good and for his glory. And then lastly, we see that scripture empowers the disciples. It empowers them to trust God. It empowers them to know the gospel and reliably share it. It empowers them to teach sound doctrine about the Messiah and who he is and then us as well. And it empowers them to actually obey God and holiness and witness. And so here's what I want to do. Because I think if, if we're taking away what we see in the book of Acts this morning, as they sit and they wait and they gather, they're doing some of the very same things we do every week. Right? Coming together, spending time together, praying together and studying the scriptures together so we might be encouraged and empowered. So here's what I do. I want to, do. I want to invite the, the band back up and I want to give you guys an opportunity to, to respond to what we're seeing in God's word this morning. To respond to the call that, that Jesus placed on the life of the disciples, but subsequently he places on us because we are the church. And I want to ask you this question. If the scriptures indicated to Peter, hey, hey we, need, we need to pass the baton of leadership. We need to follow God's word. We need to trust God's promises. We need to be uh, followers of what God is asking us to do. And we can trust in that. And we can see that Peter follows through on that. And in following through on that, right, we see this movement of the church spread across the earth in a way that no one could have ever predicted. I want you to ask yourself this question. If that, if that is true, if God's word was true for Peter, am I living in such a way that the scriptures are true to me as well? And if the scriptures are true to you as well, what are they telling you this morning? What is God's word asking of you this morning? Maybe there's unconfessed sin in your life that that you know what the scripture says about that and you need to just take a moment and you need to lay that sin at the feet of Jesus, asking for his forgiveness and asking the Holy Spirit to empower you in repentance and obedience. Maybe, maybe the scripture's telling you something else. Maybe, maybe it's telling you that it's time for you to join and link arms with the local church and live out the mission of God. Because it is. Maybe it's as simple as asking God to reveal to you one person who's not a disciple and follower of Jesus and asking God to use you to witness to the glory of God to them. By the way, Scripture tells us all those things. And here's what I want you to do. 
If you didn't get a chance last week, write down, there's, there's no cards in the back of some of these seats. Grab one, write down the name of somebody if God's leading you to. And as you come up and take communion, we take communion every week at Aletheia Church. And we take it because God told us to do so. And we take it weekly because we want to worship Jesus. Guys, taking communion is an act of worship. I remember growing up in my church, it was a very traditional church, and it was like this solemn, somber experience. And sometimes it can be that way, but here's the reality. By taking of the bread and the juice, you know what you're doing? You're saying and declaring this over your life. The flesh and body of Christ and the blood poured out on the cross for me was sufficient to forgive me of my sins, and I am in Christ adopted as a son of the Most High God. That's something to worship it. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I ask that you not take communion. Right, not because, I mean, there's plenty of food back there. Just go eat something back there. But communion represents something different for followers of Jesus Christ. It represents the body and blood of our Savior broken for us. And if you're not a Christian, we would love to talk to you more about having a relationship with Jesus. But as you come up and take communion, write down the name of somebody, someone that you want to see God move and save and lay it at the foot of the cross because here's what we saw last week. Only the Holy Spirit can do that work. He empowers us for that ministry. And then go back to your seat and just worship. Because us gathering here this morning is a fulfillment of the promise of Scripture to see the glory of God go to the nations. And while you're there, maybe just ask God to use you to witness, to witness to his glory so that we can link arms together as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what race, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what culture, no matter what gender, no matter what socioeconomic status we contain. The kingdom of God, we are his sons and daughters on mission together, witnessing to the glory of God. Let's pray that God might unify us in that way so we can make much of him together. Let's pray.